Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Good morning, everybody, and happy Sabbath. Do you like the Sabbath greeting? Is it, is it, is it pleasant to your ears? Happy Sabbath. I wasn't raised in the church. It sounded kind of weird to me at first, but I mastered it. Happy Sabbath. But I think you've probably noticed what I've noticed, and that is that if you say something over and over and over again for weeks and months and years, you can kind of go into intellectual neutral, right? And forget what a thing means when you say it over and over again. Have you noticed that? So, so you say, happy Sabbath. I mean, what, what, what does that mean? So a few years ago, I decided to, to change up my Sabbath greeting to come up with an exegetical Sabbath greeting. I'm going to try it on you right now. Here it is. Happy salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone day. <laughs> Would you go ahead and try that on the person sitting next to you? Just, just, just for fun. Just go, go ahead. Happy salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone day. Go. It's your turn. <laughs> I must tell you, however, that not everybody loves that Sabbath greeting. In fact, I saw two grumpy people this morning that didn't look like they loved it. Years ago, when I first developed that Sabbath greeting, uh, I wanted to try it out, you know? You got, you got to give it a go. And so I was speaking at a church I'd never been to before. I parked the car, I walked into the foyer, and there was the head elder. I knew he was the head elder. He had the head elder look, <laughs> right? Maybe even a little bit of a head elder aroma. Right? I was like, that's the head elder. I know that's the head elder. And uh, I just walked up to him and I said, happy salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone day. He didn't even crack a smile. He backed up a step. And he said, happy, you better keep the Ten Commandments because Jesus is coming soon day. <laughs> and I said, happy, if we love him, we will keep his commandments day. And I'm saved by grace through faith. I don't know about you day. <laughs> And then he had the audacity to take it a step further. He said, happy the investigative judgment is underway, and I don't know if you're going to make it day. <laughs> to which I responded, I've read Daniel chapter 7 and 8, and judgment is in favor of the saints of the Most High God day. <laughs> and that was the end of it. I think the gospel won in the church foyer that day with the with the head elder. So happy Sabbath, everybody. I'm glad you're joining us for this time together as we come to this high Sabbath. It's a high Sabbath. I want to make sure you understand that we're in the midst of a series called Unbelievable, and it is so unbelievable that it must be true. Amen. The things we've been discovering are just gorgeous, beautiful, theologically lovely, that point to the character of God in a way that has just been magnificent for me. Those of you who have been coming, would you, would you give an enthusiastic amen for those who haven't been coming to recommend that they come later on today at 4 o'clock? All right. Hopefully you all come at 4 o'clock. There's two more sessions after this one. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to explore a particular passage of Scripture, specific pas passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So you have a Bible. Go ahead and get it open. Get it ready. You might want to mark something. You might want to just take note. So we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, the title of the message, From Glory to Glory, comes from the only verse 
that we've really spent much time with. It's the verse that if you know any verses, you know this verse. This is the part of the passage that most people are familiar with if they're familiar with the passage at all. That's not to say some of you might not be familiar with what goes before, but a lot of people aren't. I wasn't for a long time. And so this term we're going to crack into and try to understand this morning from glory to glory. We'll look at the passage in just a moment, but I want to begin with a theological riddle. Do you like riddles? Yeah? Any puzzlers here? No, I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. So this is a theological riddle. About 400 years after the time of Christ, there was this this guy in northern Africa who was just a massive intellect. He was a super smart guy, wrote a lot of books. His name was Augustine. Sometimes he's called Saint Augustine. And it is pretty certain that he is the most influential theologian in Christian history. He said a lot of great things and some things that aren't so great. Augustine's a mixed bag. He had moments of sheer theological brilliance. You're like, oh my, that's amazing. And other times, he had some points at which we can only now, in retrospect, look back and say, ah, that was kind of heretical. For example, he was influential uh, in prompting the idea that persecution for the sake of conversion was a good idea. Turns out that's a pretty bad idea. The union of church and state in any form is a bad idea. But he had some high points of theological genius and some low points of theological heresy. Now, I'm going to share with you a statement by Augustine, and you're going to have to figure out true or false. Is this Augustine at his best or Augustine at his worst? So here's the riddle. Are you ready for it? Are you ready? Here it is. Here it is. Love God and do as you please. If I were you, I wouldn't answer out loud. You can whisper what you think the answer is to the person sitting next to you so they can call you to account later on. Love God and do as you please. True or false? Good theology, bad theology? We'll come back to this statement as we conclude the message. But now let's come to Paul's passage from which we derive the title of the message, From Glory to Glory. It's verse 18 in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the verse that most of us are familiar with from which the term is derived. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory, that's our key word, of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, here's the term, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. What is this transition from glory to glory, and what is the nature of the transformation that Paul is speaking of here? Now, I'm going to suggest to you that in order to understand it, we need to back up to let Paul explain to us what he thinks it means, what he knows it means, what he's trying to communicate, right? Usually, it's translated something like this, that by beholding, we become changed from one stage of character development to the next. It's, a, it's in that sense, a sanctification passage a victory over sin passage. It's a passage that is centered in my moral development. Are you tracking with me? All right? Now, I'm not saying that there's not truth to that interpretation, but I am saying that's not what Paul's talking about primarily, if at all. So let's go back to the beginning of Paul's line of reasoning. You're going to have to track with this. 
God has made us, and us here is all of us, priesthood of all believers and whatever gifts God has given us the capacity to minister with. God has made us sufficient ministers of the new covenant. Now, what do we know immediately when we encounter something called new? There is, by contrast, something called old. So he's made us sufficient ministers of the new covenant. God has given us a particular mission. He says to his church, he says to you and me, he says, here's what I want you to do. Here's your marching orders. Preach the new covenant. Live the new covenant. Experience the new covenant. Model the new covenant. Do church life in the new covenant mode of being. New covenant. And then he says something interesting. Not, so now he makes a negation statement. He says, this is what you ought to be doing. You ought to be preaching the new covenant, ministering the new covenant. And, and, and don't do this, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Why, Paul? Well, because, Paul says, the letter, the letter kills. But the spirit gives life. There, there's something problematic about holding forth the letter of the law in the absence of something else. Something problematic. The letter kills. Let me translate this very simply. Paul is saying there's the old covenant. There's something that can be called, and he calls the new covenant. The old covenant, he calls the letter, and it kills. He's essentially saying that legalism is lethal. It's destructive spiritually and on multiple levels. In what sense does the letter kill? Well, at least on four levels. The letter kills theologically because it paints a false picture of the character of God. It gives the impression that God is what God is not. It gives the impression that God is an exacting creditor that must have his pound of flesh, that he must be placated, that he must be appeased in order for him to come over to where we are with favor, with salvation, with blessing. So in this arrangement, in this picture of the character of God, the human agent is the bigger person. God's the, there's little old God who's dependent on me doing something to get God to be better than he is. There's, there's, there's the human agent is acting upon God versus God acting upon the human agent. Now, the gospel says that God, unilaterally, because of who he is, is acting upon the human agent, and response arises from God's primary posture and action. But the letter of the law paints a picture of God that puts me in the position of having to generate something in God to make God better than he is. It also kills emotionally. The letter kills emotionally. I don't know if you're aware of this, but churches are full. Not everybody, of course. I don't, I don't know how you would figure this out. People know if the shoe fits, wear it. If the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. If this is true, fine. If it's not true, just, ah, oh, it's not true. But churches are filled with people who are intellectual believers and emotional atheists. They believe all what ought to be believed. They can recite it to you. They can do kung fu apologetics. 
They can prove things to you. They can hold their own in a theological argument and win the argument. But they're not head over heels in love with Jesus. They're leaning in intellectually and leaning out emotionally. Because legalism deadens our emotional capacity for affection and adoration because it's based on a false picture of the character of God. And also the letter kills relationships. It kills relationally. Just ask your adult children by the millions who have left the church. In fact, the numbers for our own North American division, for those of you who are Seventh-day Adventists, show that there are more people on the books who don't show up than there are that do show up. In other words, we have more people written, we have their names written down, but the majority of them have nothing to do with us, and yet we say we have that many. We have a number. We say we have that many. Well, you can just cut that number right in half because fully 50 to 60% of them are not showing up. They're not showing up because if you're raised in it, now this isn't always the case. There are many factors involved, right? There is the culture that they're dealing with. There is human nature. I mean, the devil himself rebelled in the presence of God. So there are other factors. I'm not saying there aren't other factors, but if you're raised in an environment, a local church environment, a community environment, a home environment, in which the overall vibe is no, you will gradually grow up and lean out. If the overall vibe is yes, you might have an opportunity to think, man, God is amazing, right? It also kills biologically. I was doing a series of meetings in New Zealand once a few years ago, and there was an elderly couple sitting two rows back on my left, and they kept staying each night, so I thought, they're kind of shy, but I think they want to talk, maybe. I think maybe they want to have a conversation. So I, I went off the stage about the third or fourth night. I said, hi, my name's Ty, and they told me their names, and this elderly couple, this man and this woman sat there, and this woman with tears in her eyes, she said something I've never heard. She said, she said, this is my husband. He's been on anxiety medication his entire adult life to manage his Adventism. <laughs> I thought, that's weird. And yet, hmm, that's his experience. And then he was quick to say, he said, but, 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 but tell him, tell him the other part. And she said, you tell him. He said, he said, but we've been listening to those light bearers sermons about the good news and I'm off my medication. <laughs> now, I'm not a psychiatrist and I am not suggesting that I know anything about this. Don't take this wrong. I'm saying what I'm saying, I'm not saying what I'm not saying. And I'm not patting Randy and Ty and, and, and David and, and, and Jeffrey on the back. We're not even that great at what we do, but I'm telling you this, if you try at least to speak the good news of the gospel, whoa, people just lighten up and they're free and they begin to have an atmosphere and an environment in which they can finally lean into God without incrimination. It's the way it works. So the most miserable person in the world, I'm going to suggest to you, is a Christian who doesn't know Christ. That's not, that's, not a, that's not so much an oxymoron 
as it is a truism of experience. You can be all you can be in ritualistically, going to church, holding an office, being a volunteer, throwing some money in the offering plate, and you'll never leave the church because it would freak your mom out. <laughs> or your grandparents would just not be able to process it, so you just keep showing up, right? Or you just want to get into the good place and not go to the bad place. That's pretty motivating. Don't kid yourself, even Adventist hell is bad. <laughs> right? Don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven. But listen, if I quote-unquote love you because of what you do for me, who do I actually love? Me. Like the marriage counseling session I had with a couple one time, and she said, my husband doesn't love me. He said, yes, I do. He said, she said, no, you don't. You use me to love yourself. I'm a tool. Well, is God a tool? Is God like a vending machine in which you put the appropriate coinage to get the goodies that you want, namely pearly gates, streets of gold, and eternal life? I mean, do a psychological experiment, which I got from Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. Luther says, just imagine there is no heaven or eternal life, and there is no hell. There's no rewards for being good. There's no, there's no penalty for being bad. Would you still be a Christian? Now you know exactly where you are. Now you know exactly where you are. Is Jesus sufficiently beautiful to say, you know what? If I have 70, 80, 90 years of knowing and loving him and there is nothing after this life, I still love Jesus. So what we're discovering here is that the gospel is something like this. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor simply and profoundly because you already have it. See, God already loves you and he already did all that can possibly be done for your salvation in the person of Christ. This is why Paul refers to salvation, redemption, in the past tense as a historical achievement in Christ. In Romans chapter 3, he refers to it as the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God already loves you. Now Paul continues, and he says, you got to follow Paul. He's a little complex. Even Peter said, Paul, come on. Paul wrote many things that are hard to be understood that people twist to their own destruction. Don't blame me for how complex this is. Talk to Paul in the new heavens and the new earth. But we, if we can get it, it's amazing. But if the ministry of death, which he just referred to in verse 6, as the letter that kills. Now he's just using new language to describe the same thing. If the ministry of death, comma, written and engraved on stones. Okay, question, question. What law specifically does Paul have in mind in this passage? The ceremonial law with the killing of the sacrifices, or what do you think? How do you know it's the moral law? It's written and engraved in stone, right? So Paul is trying to help us to understand our proper relationship to the moral law. The ministry of death written and engraved in stone was glorious. If it was glorious, and it, it was, wasn't it? Have you read Exodus 20 and 21? Exodus 19 through 21? It was pretty glorious. The mountains shook. There was lightning, thunder, right? And then what happened? Moses came down, and the children of Israel couldn't even steadily look at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, the residual glory of his contact with God, right? They were like, oh, Moses, no, don't even come near us. In fact, they said in chapter 20, Moses, this was absolutely terrifying. 
never let God talk to us again. But all that the Lord has said, we will do and obey all his commandments. Let me translate that for you. They're essentially saying, we want to render obedience without intimacy. We don't want to know God, but we'll do what we're told. We'll do what we're told. They were liberated from Egyptian bondage, came out of Egypt, right? But was Egypt out of them is the question. The psychology of their bondage is carried into their relationship with Yahweh. They've just switched masters, Pharaoh, and now it's Yahweh. Yahweh is not what they think he is, but the lens of their psychology causes them to believe that God is an intimidating taskmaster that must be obeyed to get from God what they want to get. So, they couldn't even look at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. Now, this is a little difficult, especially if you were raised in the church and which glory was passing away? That glory was passing away. The glory of the Sinai event was giving way to something else. So is Paul an antinomian? Keep tracking. It was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be much more glorious? So we have this language before us. Paul says, our key word, by the way, remember, is glory. So Paul is telling us what he means. There is what Paul calls glorious, and then there's something called, Paul says is more glorious. Glory, more glory, right? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, now what's he talking about? Well, this is just additional terminology for what he just called the ministry of death and the letter that kills. He's talking about the same thing all along, just different language, right? What is the ministry of condemnation? It is the Sinai event in the Ten Commandments. The the New Testament is full of this idea. What about the book of James? The law of God, the perfect law of liberty, you look at it and it, it, it acts like a mirror, like a psychological mirror. You look at the law and it shows you yourself by contrast, right? The way Romans describes that reality is Paul says, by the law is the knowledge or the consciousness of sin. So the law's proper sphere of activity is to show me what's wrong with me it's called condemnation it's a ministry of condemnation but paul says well well there's something else there's the ministry of righteousness which exceeds much more in glory the word ministry here would be better understood by us as something like to administer so so the law administers condemnation right? It, 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 it confers condemnation. But what is the ministry of righteousness? It's the conference of righteousness. It's to administer righteousness. The Protestant reformers would say the, the imputation of righteousness, right? In, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul says it like this. Paul says, God calls those things which do not exist as though they do. Now, if you do that, that's called lying. But God calls those things which do not exist as though they do. Romans 4, verse 17. What does he mean? God God calls me righteous even though he knows I'm not. 
and he relates to me as if I were innocent, even though he knows I'm guilty. This is what Paul calls in Galatians 5, righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith, otherwise known as the gospel, Amen. right? The gospel is the highest form of healing psychology because it gives me a relational dynamic with God that is free of incrimination and condemnation so I can now lean into God and grow into my relationship with him, right? We know this is true even on the human level. Let's say you have a married couple, there's a mom and a dad and they have a little boy, he's four years old. And they say he needs to start doing some chores around the house. So your first chore, little guy, is you're gonna sweep the floor after dinner tonight in the kitchen. You're gonna sweep the kitchen floor. Okay, he's excited about it. If he's a weird little kid. <laughs> and then the broom is put in his hands, right? It's bigger than his body, it's hard to manage. He doesn't have the dexterity for the thing, but he's just sweeping, and he sweeps and sweeps and sweeps the floor, and he, he's, he's, he's left a banana peel and two sandwiches. There's like some watermelon rinds over there. And if daddy comes in the kitchen and says, dude, what is wrong with you? You're such a lame sweeper. Give me that broom. I'll show you how it's done. Sweep, 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 sweep. Little boy is standing back. And what just happened his motivation was just killed. So tomorrow night when daddy says, do you want to sweep the floor? His answer is, no, daddy, you sweep the floor. You're better at it than me. He doesn't want to participate in the family dynamics anymore. By the time he's 13, he'll be in his room with the door shut and you'll never see him again. No, 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 no. But what if the dynamic changes? He sweeps the floor. He misses all kinds of banana peel sandwiches, watermelon rinds. This place is a mess. She sweeps, and Daddy says, Dude, you are the best sweeper in the world. You, you got the sweeping thing down. You're an amazing sweeper. And what is the boy going to respond by saying? He's going to say something like, Yes, I am. I'm a sweeper with a capital S, in fact. And he's going to have now his motivation is rising. And now he wants to participate, and he's going to do some sweeping tomorrow night and the next night. And will he grow in his sweeping abilities? Yeah. Let me give you a verse of scripture that occurs two times, once in Proverbs, once in Peter. I'm going to say the words. You know this. You've probably heard this before. And then I'm going to offer you an interpretation of it. It is essentially another way of describing the gospel or the dynamic of righteousness by faith. Listen to the words. You've heard this, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. Have you heard that? What does that mean? Love covers a multitude of sins. It means something like love is a compensation mechanism in a relationship where everything isn't exactly right. That's what it means, right? A couple people meet each other. She's 19 or 20. She calls her mom. Mom, I met him. He's amazing. He's so cute. He's amazing. He's so... Right? Mom, he's the one. I'm going to marry this guy. And he's like, Dad, she's hot. <laughs> so those are the conversations that have occurred. They're in love. They get married. Two weeks into it, two months into it, probably two days into it, she's like, what did I get myself into? 
No way do you eat sandwiches in bed and leave crumbs. Oh, uh, yeah, actually, I do. And he's like, no way are all of your clothes always in a pile. Can we unpile them? Have you heard of folding laundry? Right? Suddenly, his perfectly symmetrical eyebrows, he's starting to not look as great as he once looked. The only way they will stay married is if they allow their love to compensate for the downside of each. In fact, it's the only way any friendship will last. It's the only way any relationship will last is if you allow for love to take up the slack in the relationship and say, yeah, no, but I love you. Now, that's on the human level. On the cosmic level, on the salvation level, that's the basic psychology of righteousness by faith. God confers righteousness. He relates to me according to my potential rather than according to what my present reality is. He's like, ah, yeah, no, but oh, you're amazing. You're my son. You're my daughter. And I'm all in with you. And now I have the relational dynamic with God in which I can grow. There's no incrimination. There's no condemnation. I have security in Christ. And now I'm going to grow. I'm going to flourish in my relationship with God. So there is what he calls the glory of condemnation. And then there's something that he says is way, way, way more glorious. And it's the glory of righteousness. And then he says this. For even what was made glorious. Now he's going to speak in hyperbole. It's a literary mechanism. He's exaggerating for effect. Even that which was made glorious. What's that? The Sinai event. The giving of the Ten Commandments. Even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect. Right? By reason of or because of the glory that excels. Have you ever been out at night when there's a full moon? Isn't it beautiful? Would you use the word glorious? I would. I would say, whew. Man, that moon, is just, it's luminous. It's like a light hanging in the sky. It's, it's, it's beautiful, right? But then the sun comes up, listen carefully, and the moon vanishes, but it's still there. Paul's not an antinomian. The law of God is immutable, eternal. The law of God wasn't abolished or nailed to the cross or any of that kind of thing. Paul isn't abolishing the law. He's putting the law in its right relationship to the gospel. The son of righteousness, S-O-N, has risen and eclipsed the glory of the moon. And the fact is that the glory of the moon, all the while, was reflecting the glory of the sun in the night sky. The moon only has light that is reflective from the sun. So there is that which was made glorious, the Sinai event. And Paul says, ah, there's a sense in which it really had no glory because there is a glory that so far supersedes it that comparisons are ridiculous. Okay? This is Paul's point. So he says, for if what was passing away was glorious, you don't like that, I don't like that, we don't like the words passing away in proximity to the law written and engraved in stone. You're feeling nervous right now. I can see it. Some of you are like. 
What, 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 what? What's he saying? No, he, that would be me, he's not saying anything. Paul's saying something. Paul's saying something. In what sense? If that which is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Let Paul explain to us. Therefore, since we have such hope, what's the hope? The hope is the glory of the gospel in Christ. We use great boldness of speech. Paul's about to take the gloves off, and with bare knuckles, he's going to beat legalism and the old covenant to the ground so we can encounter the gospel. He said, I'm about to get bold with you. Can you handle it? He says, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel couldn't even look steadily to the end of that which was passing away. We don't like the word end in proximity to the law of God. But wait a minute. The word end here in the Greek is telos, from which we get words like telescope and telegraph and teleological. Paul's not an antinomian. He knows the law of God is eternal and immutable. Paul is not attacking the law. He's saying that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. He's saying that the law, the Sinai event in the giving of the Ten Commandments, has a teleological narrative arc that lands in Christ. If you keep hanging out too long with the law without allowing it to have its proper sphere of influence in your life to point you to Christ, you're going to experience condemnation and you're going to find that your Christian experience has a very kind of low level of commitment where you do minimum requirements, what you got. By the way, you know that legalism's on a spectrum, don't you? There is conservative legalism, salvation by maximum requirements, and there is liberal legalism, salvation by minimum requirements. But it's of the same basic character. Whenever, the book Steps of Christ is very interesting in this regard, it says that people who believe the gospel, that's my part, she says, don't ask how little they can give. <laughs> to Jesus. They're like, oh, I'm so in love with him. Jesus said, I'll do anything you want because I'm in love with you because of your love for me. It's all legalism. There aren't multiple options. There's two options. A full spectrum of liberal and conservative legalism that is of the same basic character, and then there's the gospel by contrast to all that. So Paul says, we're going to get plain. We're going to get bold here. The children of Israel, they couldn't even look to the teleological end. They couldn't, they couldn't see that Christ is what they were looking for all along. Now, check this out. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted. What kind of veil is this? Is it made of fabric? It's made of theology. It's a psychological veil. How do we know? Their minds were blinded. It's made of ideas, this veil, bad ideas. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. They're reading the Bible, Paul says, and still the veil is there. There's a psychological barrier, and the veil is only lifted. It's only taken away in Christ. When you shift the total weight of your theological 
and your emotional and your relational and your communal focus to Christ and all that has been achieved for us apart from us in him. Then the veil begins to lift. And you begin to see yourself and others in a whole new light because you see God in a whole new light. You can read the Bible, Paul is saying here, in a way that blinds you to the gospel. Let me say it to you this way. I can be, in fact, I have been, I can be textually aware of what the Bible says and unenlightened as to what it means. I mean, I can quote scripture to you like a machine gun, and yet, at the same time, be oblivious to the good news of the gospel, right? So Paul is essentially telling us you have one of two options. You can either relate, follow this, you can either try to get to Christ, get to salvation, get to favor. You can try to, try to relate to Christ through the law, or you can relate to the law through Christ, And this is what he's trying to tell us when he goes on and says, but even to this day, to this day, he's kind of sad. You can feel the sadness, can't you? Everybody feel, frown, feel sad with Paul. Oh, so sad. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil lies upon their hearts. Nevertheless, now you can smile. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus, the veil lifts. It's taken away. You're like, oh, What? God is so good, and I am secure in Christ. His grace is amazing. The veil is lifted in Christ. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's liberty. You know when you're encountering the true gospel because it's liberating. It frees you from guilt and incrimination. I mean, Jesus is just going around saying to people, your sins are forgiven you. What? <laughs> just think of how powerful this is. Well, don't I, need to, don't I need to A, B, C, X, Y? No, your sins are forgiven. And now the person's leaning in. One of those persons is the only one hanging around the cross, really. There were a few others. Her name was Mary. She was, by some people's estimation, the worst of the worst. But boy, she's leaning in. I don't condemn you. What? Are you serious? Are you serious? You don't. No, go and sin no more. In the light of my love for you, you don't have to do that anymore. If you'll just hang out with my love, if you'll just bask in my love, if you'll just immerse yourself in my non-condemnatory love for you, sin will lose its hold on, it'll lose its attraction it's yucky anyway. It's not, it's not, you, you're amazing, and I love you, right? And then we come to the realization that what Paul has been teaching us is that the law, apart from Christ, only has a power to generate guilt. That's all it has the power to do. And guilt generates anxiety, and anxiety then continues the cycle by making me try a little harder, by focusing on the law. 
and this, this law, guilt, anxiety, try harder cycle is so self-defeating that you only have one of two options, really. You will either, you will either become a self-righteous Pharisee policing the church for skirt lengths and cheese, or you will give up in despair because you just can't do it anymore, and you're under the impression that everybody else has their act together. Let me tell you a secret. Legalism gives the, gives the appearance of righteousness. It's a mask. And wherever the gospel is not robustly preached in a religious community, people will master the art of pretending. None of us will really know, really, any of the rest of us. And vulnerability is impossible. You can't confide in your brother, in your sister, for fellowship and growth, because you gotta keep pretending. But the gospel takes all the pretense away because grace generates a sense of liberty. The incrimination and the condemnation recedes. And now I have, I have space, I have mobility with Jesus. I can, I can move around and I can, I can grow, right? I can begin to say, wow, I don't need to run from you every time I fail. No, you don't need to run from me when you fail. I'm right here with you. Always, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And grace produces a sense of liberty, which then generates a sense of rest. Freedom from the pagan anxiety of trying to earn God's favor. And then that reinforces your vision of the character of God as a God of grace. And you begin to grow in this sense of freedom in Christ. You don't suddenly, out of nowhere, find yourself in this position the gospel needs to be preached. You need to encounter the love of God. It needs to be articulated. It needs to be taken on board. You need to say, I believe that. As unbelievable as it may seem, I believe it. I believe that where sin abounds, grace superabounds over it. I believe that God loves me. And I believe that my salvation is secure in him, not in myself. Believe it. And the moment you start believing it, everything starts to change. Your shoulders will be a little bit more erect. You'll be more free in your relationships. Your insecurities will begin to subside. You'll start, stop policing everybody's behavior and realize that not everybody believes or knows exactly what you believe and know, and some of the stuff you believe and know you shouldn't believe and know. You'll just start to want to create an environment in which people can lean into Jesus and grow in him. Now we come to our text. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Well, now we know what Paul's been talking about all along. There is the glory of the Sinai event and the giving of the Ten Commandments, which had glory. It was pretty glorious, right? 
And then there's the glory of administered righteousness. And the transformation, the nature of this transformation is first and, first and foremost is, is the transformation of paradigm shift in my vision of God's character and his posture toward me. It's a paradigm shift passage. It's a, it's a Jesus-centered transition. It's not a self-egocentric passage. Not that sanctification isn't a thing. Sanctification and victory over sin are byproducts of the gospel. They are not the gospel itself. And so, essentially, Paul is saying that we need to undergo a paradigm shift, and it's, the, it's just the ultimate paradigm shift, from the glory of the law to the glory of Christ. And then we come back to Augustine, that truth-telling heretic. Love God and do as you please. True or false? Well, it all depends where you put the emphases on which syllable, I guess, something like that. You can say, love God. Do as you please. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Sin with gusto. <laughs> or you can say, love God in the light of his love for you, and everything will begin to change for you from the inside out. And you won't have to manage the thing with anxiety because you are living from a place of salvation not reaching toward salvation. You're living from a place of victory, not trying with white-knuckle effort to get salvation. You can't get victory and salvation from God in a transaction of your works in exchange for his favor. Now, the book Desire of Ages says this so well, and I'll close with this. All true obedience, which leaves you under the impression that there is something by contrast that can be accurately referred to as false obedience. All true obedience comes from where? From the heart. Now, I love this line. It was heart work with Christ, which is just a way of saying when Jesus came to this world and even now through the Spirit, Jesus is aiming for your heart. He's doing a heart work. He's aiming for the inside. He's not just, this is not behavior modification therapy. This is, this is the gospel, and he's aiming for your heart. Check this out. Just allow yourself to be blown away by this. And if we consent, what's our part? It doesn't say, and if we try hard enough, eventually, I think I'm going to make it. Jesus is coming soon. I don't know if I'm going to make it, but I'm going to keep trying. I'll probably be eternally lost, but maybe, just maybe, I'll make it. No, if we consent. If we just say, what is consent? If we just say, yes. Yes, Jesus, I'm with you because you're with me. If we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims. So blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will. How many of you are drinking smoothies? You got a blender. You bought one of those things off the television. The, 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 the kung fu one or the, I don't know, you bought, what is it? The, 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 the ninja one or whatever. I mean, that, 
You put all kinds of stuff in there. You put some protein powder, some blueberries, some blackberries. You put in there some bananas and some peaches and probably some kumquats or something. I don't know. You put whatever you put in your smoothie because you read something. There's some flaxseed in that thing. <laughs> and you blend it up. When something gets blended, right, if you have a good blender, the gospel's a great blender. If you blend it all up, it's not, you can't really, I mean, you can't, at that point, you're not separating those blueberries from those flax seeds. You're just not going to pull it off. So he is operating in a way where he's aiming for your heart, and he will so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses? What is that? Imagine doing whatever you want. That feels dangerous for a minute, doesn't it? Imagine doing whatever you want, and what you want is what he wants. Imagine that. Imagine your heart and mind being so blended with his in love because of his great love for you and me that, 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 that obeying him is what you actually want. You, you begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Isn't that just amazing? It's just incredible. Your wanter is fixed by the gospel. You have one, if you haven't noticed, all day long. Pay attention. You want all kinds of stuff. So do I. And the gospel, the gospel heals us at the deepest possible level of our souls. It's almost too good to be true. It's almost too good to be true. It's unbelievable, so unbelievable, in fact, that if you pause and think about it, you say, man, God must be that good. God must actually be that good. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for loving us with such a profoundly deep and transformative love. God, please help us to shift the weight of our focus, our theology, our affections, our worship, our relationships into Christ, into the gospel. Set us free, liberate us from all the anxiety that keeps us worried and worried and worried about whether or not we're going to make it. Help us to know in our hearts that we've made it in Christ that he has achieved everything necessary and that we, by faith, in his faithfulness to us, are secure in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.